in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, which says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, I want you to know that I figured this was going to be the shortest sermon that I ever preached. Some of you might be a little excited at hearing that, but, but that was it. Last week they were in Philippi where there was all sorts of things happening and a church was planted and in another week they're going to be in Thessalonica where there's going to be another church plant and exciting things happening. And I must have got the short straw. When Paul and his companions passed through Amphipolis, uh, that's, that's this morning's sermon. I, I have to be honest with you, I had a little difficulty with this. Um, as Pastor Owen said in the video, Luke doesn't tell us anything about what happened there. And uh, we don't know very much. I know that, as Pastor Allen said, in, in history it shows that something took place. But even if I hadn't known that, even if he hadn't said that, upon reflection and upon giving it some prayer, I would have known absolutely that something would have happened in Amphipolis. And the reason I know that is not because the Bible tells us very much or anything about Amphipolis, but it tells us a lot about the Apostle Paul. And if you know the Apostle Paul and you know his heart, you know that he, if he passed through for one night or one day, it doesn't tell us, could have been a couple of days, he had had a difficult time in Philippi, if you remember. He had been thrown in prison there and uh, had been treated badly by the people of, of Philippi, the religious people of Philippi, uh, but had the opportunity to meet a family there, and the church was started. And while he was in jail, God miraculously delivered him from jail, and the, the uh, jailer and his family were saved and baptized and, and were probably immediately part of the church. And, uh, and Paul would come to Amphipolis. What story he would have to tell? He's, um, his letters are recorded. I kind of sort of played with what would have happened if they had planted a church there, if we would be speaking from Paul's writing to the Amphibolitians, I think, I came up with. But we don't even have that. He passed through Amphipolis. Paul tells us, and so he, I know, lived by this, by everything else I see by him in the, of him in the scripture. Paul tells us that whatever we do, we're to take every opportunity that we get to share the gospel. Uh, he says to the church at Corinth and the church at Colossae, both whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, even the, the everyday things of life, do all to the glory of God. Um, this was what Paul did. He said, I, I'm crucified with Christ. In other words, I'm dead to myself. I'm crucified with Christ, but I still live. Uh, but not me. Christ lives in me. And this life that I now live in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we see Paul's heart. And so we can imagine, we can know that when he was in this place, that he would find whatever opportunity he had to share the gospel 
or whatever opportunity he had to make people known that he was a Christian and whatever opportunity he had to bring glory to God through this. Paul was a planter. Somebody, one commentator called Paul the great planter. He believed in planting seeds of the gospel, knowing that God would send somebody else to come along and water that seed that was planted. And ultimately, God would be the one who brought results. What does it mean to do everything we do to the glory of God? What, what does that mean? I, I pondered that some time ago and, and believe came up with the answer that what it means to glorify God in everything we do is to say that what we do should point to God, should reveal who God is and bring honor and glory to him. Whatever, whatever we do. And so we need to maybe do a report card on our own personal living day by day and see if, if whatever we're doing is being done to the glory of God. God. Our God is a God that wants to reveal himself to people. It's a desire that you should know him and know of him. And he does that in certain ways. In, in, in a very general way, he does it through nature. Uh, he speaks to us through nature. It says the heavens declare, make a, a statement, declare the glory of God, and the, the uh, skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's one of the first verses that I gave my kids' club kids to memorize so that they would know when they walked out that that rainbow across the sky was God making a statement, God declaring, look at me, this is the work of my hands. And... Uh, and so reveals himself. Brenda uh, Barrett put a note on Facebook. There are some things I don't like on Facebook and other times when people use whatever they do to glorify God, then I get excited about it. And Brenda, after seeing Dennis off yesterday morning, very, very early, said, I was up at 5.30 and seeing Dennis off, and I saw the most beautiful sunrise. And it spoke to me of God and all that he's created, and it gave me such peace. God, knowing that her husband was going off now for a few weeks and could have been anxious, put a sign in the sky that most of us miss because we don't get up that early, and, uh, and spoke to her heart about that he was in control. Look what I can do. Look what I created. You think I can't take care of your guy for a few weeks? Just leave this with me. Now I'm interpreting, but, uh, but God speaks to us through creation. The problem is, that in this day and age that we live in, people are too busy to notice what God has created. They are not seeing the revelation of him because we have so many electronics and technology and so on that um, keep our attention. We're so busy at work, so busy doing things that we don't take the time to get out and look at what God has made for us. In Revelation it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are created. And what gives God pleasure? The same thing that gives every other parent pleasure, that their children love and appreciate what they've done, what they've done to display, and we miss it. I was horrified to hear the other day that there's going to be a problem for, for those growing up today doing all this texting and so on, that there's something with their... Their, their spine and their, their neck and so on, that they're constantly like this. And look around, even when they're playing games and so on, uh, that, 
being over like this, that it's, it's a dangerous thing for them. And this is where the attention is. Uh, computers, video games, all sorts of things that in themselves may not be bad, but we're missing out on the revelation that God is trying to speak to us and say, look at me, here I am. Look what I created for you to enjoy. And then he's given us a very specific revelation of himself in Scripture. Um, if you read the names of God in the Old Testament, which I love, it, it tells, they tell of his very character. Some of you have named your children certain names, and maybe after a father or a mother or something, and, or some because um, of the meaning of the name, but you look through books and you get these things. The names of God are there in the Scripture, and they tell who he is. He's Almighty God. He's the provider. He's our righteousness. When we walk with him, his banner over us is love. Uh, so many things that just his names tell about his character and reveal who he is to us. And then we have things like the, old, uh, the Ten Commandments, which, which a lot of people don't care for very much because it puts some rules on living. And they think, oh, well, God put this. He just wants to, you know, be this big judge in the sky. Do you know that... that the Ten Commandments reveal the very ethical and moral nature of God and are there to help us to know how to live a life that is going to be safe and pleasing for us and for our communities. And now God tries to reveal himself in these ways, but what happens? Now they want to take the Ten Commandments off the halls of the courtrooms. Um, now his name is, is used in vain. Who reads scripture? anymore in this world i'm talking about who has has bibles i often hear about everybody the average person has seven and a half bibles well by the number of people i know who don't have bibles that must mean that christians have way too many bibles they've got for themselves and and even a lot of christians don't read the bible like they should and i can speak for myself in there i think god has me preach this because he knows i just got to get deeper into the word and he's got a real captive audience then but people don't read, so he's given us a revelation in nature. We're not looking. He gives us a revelation in the scripture. There's no Bibles around. Um, he gives us a very special revelation in Jesus. And I've been just shocked to learn that the number of people who know nothing about him, know nothing about him. Of course, when I grew up in school, we knew things about Jesus if we hadn't anything at home because... They read stories of Jesus. We had Christmas concerts, not winter concerts, where his name is not allowed to be used. Um, we, saw, we sang Christmas carols, not just Rudolph and that. I like those, and we sung those too, but we sung the good carols of the church that were full of theology and spoke of Jesus, the one that, that came and died for us in Easter time. Some people went to church at least at Easter and at Christmas, Nowadays, it's, it's nothing to so many people. And I'm telling you, I'm shocked at how many people do not know anything about him. His name is used as a swear word still. Last night, I was flicking the TV to the news channel, and I caught this little comedy thing. This guy was standing there, very young guy, so I listened for half a minute, because he said, I'm an atheist. And then he started to make fun of the little Jesus, and I was just sick to my stomach, and I, I, I turned it right away but they don't know. They don't know. So all of the revelations that God has given us are not, 
are not ones that people are paying attention to. But you know what? He has some, something else. He has you. And he has me. And Barry, thanks for that song this morning about you know, people who are willing to say, where you go, I'll go. When you stay, I'll stay. And, and what you want me to do, I'll do. Jesus has chosen to indwell his believers, the believers. But it's his intention that we should be a revelation of God. That's what it means when it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. Why? Because it points to us? No, because our lives ought not to point to us. They ought to point to Jesus. They ought to be a revelation of who God is by the very things that we, the very way we act and the very things that we say. They need to know that we're Christians. You know why? Because we are passing through this life. There's an old song that says, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis, and you and I are passing through all sorts of places during our lifetime in this journey that we have. We pass through school days. We pass through jobs. We pass through our churches. We pass through our communities, our neighborhoods. We're passing through. And in doing that, God says, I don't know, maybe you'll pass through this area for just a day. I hope that's not your schooling. But, um, but whatever you're passing through, whatever area on this journey of your life that you are embarking on, it may not be Africa, it may. But wherever you are in this journey in your life, you are to be a revelation of God in how you live and how you speak so that people will know him and pray that God gives you opportunities. It doesn't mean that with everybody that you're going to have the opportunity to sit down and go through the spiritual laws with them and ask them to pray the sinner's prayer. Uh-uh, it doesn't always mean that. It doesn't usually mean that. It means that you are going to be the example of who Christ is and a revelation of who his father is so that people will know. You're going to plant seeds, is what Paul says. You may never know the outcome of it. Maybe you'll speak to your neighbor and he'll move away. And you'll never know the outcome. You don't have to know the outcome. God will bring somebody else into that person's life to water the seed that you've planted. And then the ultimate thing is that God himself will be the one who brings the increase out of that seed, brings the fruit from it. And we can rest in that, that we do what we do and let God do what he does. But the calling is on each and every one of us. It wasn't just on Paul. It's on all of us. I try to think about some of the areas of my life that I could share where I know that there have been opportunities that God has given, and there are just too many, just too many. And I, I'm not the kind that likes to get up here and talk about myself, but then I saw Paul, he was always telling. And why? Because he could share with people what had happened with him. I'm sure he told those people in Amphipolis about what happened in Philippi. Maybe somebody said to him, where are you coming from? And Paul would go, ha ha, have I got a story to tell you? And then maybe after he left, maybe somebody from the church at Philippi, maybe the jailer, had occasion to travel and perhaps was able to water the seed that was planted. But we know that seeds were planted and we know that results came 
We don't know how. We don't know how God is going to work in our own lives, but we can, he'll work if we allow him to. Passing through your neighborhood. I have a young couple who lives next door to me. Moved in about seven years ago. I guess I'm going by their son is about six and he hadn't been born yet. And you think that must be enough time around to sit them down and go through the four spiritual laws. That hasn't happened yet. Sometimes it takes a while to build relationships. First Christmas, they were there. They showed up at my door with a beautiful present, and they're not Christians. I mean, by their own admission, when we talk, they have no, no spiritual upbringing whatsoever. Clean slate. But we chat. You know, when I was growing up, we had a house that had a veranda, a screen veranda on the front. And people actually walked by in those days. And they would call out, maybe stop in, and my grandmother would go and make tea and, or get a cold drink, as the case may be. We didn't usually sit out there in the winter. Um, it, was, it was what people did. We didn't have uh, five, six-foot fences at the back of the house. Uh, we could talk to our neighbors. We had friendships with our neighbors. I can remember my mom talking to the lady two doors down all the time. They became friends, and she would come on the veranda, and they'd sit, and they'd sing hymns together, great theology and hymns. And my mom would be sure to pick, I'm sure, the right ones, and I believe that lady's going to be in heaven someday because of my mom's witness. Neighbors, I don't, uh, I don't have those kind of fences. I have a chain-link fence at the, at the side. don't have a veranda on the front or a garage where you just push a button and drive right in and get out and go into your house and never have to see your neighbors. But God has placed you there. You're being taken through this area portion of your life because God has something he wants you to do. He wants you to reveal the love of Christ. And so we chat. They invite me over for a barbecue or to their son's birthday party. I try to be very generous because God's a, a generous giver. And they certainly know and they joke because I'm a lot older than they are. They're always joking that I got a better life than they do, that they're, I'm always going somewhere. There's a barbecue here or a something event at the church there and, and they laugh about it. They say, you got a better life than we do, more of a life than we do. And uh, one day, we'll call him Joe because that's his name. Uh, he called me over and he had been in a in a course. He had gone back to school to take, to be an electrician. And now he was, he was finished and I was always asking from time to time how the class was going and so on. And this one day he said, uh, he had finished his classes and he said, I'm, I'm having a really difficult time getting a job, Marilyn, because I have no experience in it. I'm new at this. And I said, you know what, Joe? I'm going to pray about that for you, that God will provide you with a job. And he sort of said, oh, okay, thanks. And when I got back in the house, I got down and I prayed and said, God, Joe needs a job, and he knows I'm asking about this for him, and I need you to come through and just be evidence that you're alive and well and, and interested in the things of our daily lives. And so a couple of days later, I was outside, and Joe called me over. I want you to speak to your friend again, he said. And I got to tell you, I was clueless. I thought, what? And he said, I got two job offers and I don't know which one to take. <laughs> and I said, well then, Joe, I'm going to pray that you'll be given the wisdom, but let's talk about it. Let's tell me about it. One was going to be out of town, a lot more money. 
And uh, I, we chatted about it, and I said, you need to sit down with your wife and talk about these pros and cons and see. I said, but, you know, your little guy, he's, he's just a baby, and she's going to be at home with big responsibilities for weeks at a time, maybe, because it's out of town. And you're going to miss a lot of his growing up, and you want to think about that. So a few days later, I saw him again, and he said, well, I decided on the job in the city, Marilyn. And we have that kind of relationship. And I was so thankful. And they told me when I asked them that they had no, no spiritual background, no spiritual upbringing. How is this going to play out? I don't know. I don't know. I'm planting seeds. And, uh, and that's what we're called to do, to be a revelation of God to man. And at work, I remember a day at work, and I, I worked for a very prestigious law firm in the city of Winnipeg. At one time, it was the largest law firm west of Toronto. And the head haunch in it was a scary guy. He was a very important, rich, pompous lawyer. And uh, we usually scattered when we saw him coming. And uh, after working there a few years, and so on one day I was working my lunch hour and nobody was around and he came, I guess, looking for my boss. He was a very important guy, by the way, really. He, he was associated with an international relief agency and had actually accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the agency when it was presented. And he came around this day and he stood in front of my desk, probably looking for somebody. And he said, uh, he started telling me a story out of the blue. And he said, oh, I want to tell you a story. He said, uh, give me the name of this fellow who is the head of the, this relief org organization. And he said, uh, he was coming to visit my wife and I and with his wife. And he said, we went to meet them at the airport, and they got off the uh, plane, and he was with a woman that was not his wife and very, very young. We didn't think it was his daughter. And, and he said, my wife was so upset. It was so uncomfortable. And we took them out to our summer place at Lac de Bonnie. I went by there on a boat one time. I thought it was a golf and country club. This is their summer place. And seriously... He said, uh, we took them out there, and my wife is really still being very upset about this and got very confused about what to do about the sleeping arrangements and what to suggest. So she finally said, the bedrooms are down the hall, and just let, him, let them go. And of course, they went into the same room. And he said, I'd like to argue the definition of adultery in the Supreme Court of Canada. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, what do you think about that? And you know what? When I was a young person, I prayed because I worked with youth. I prayed for wisdom. And I knew the verse that said, and I didn't have time to even think about it then, the verse that said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and doesn't find fault, and it shall be given. And I have prayed so many times for wisdom, and I didn't have time to pray for it then. And he said, what do you think of that? And he was baiting me, knew as a Christian. And I looked up at him and I said, Mr. So-and-so, that wasn't his name. I said, uh, I would love to have heard you. I'd love to hear you argue that in the Supreme Court of Canada. I know that you're a brilliant lawyer, but I take my authority from a higher source than the Supreme, higher court than the Supreme Court of Canada. And I literally saw him, it looked like cold water had been thrown on him. And I thought, what have I done? And he sort of half chuckled and walked away. The next day, 
I was working through my lunch hour. I was either slow or very busy. But nobody was around. And he came around the corner again, and he stood in front of me. He said, I shouldn't have said what I did to you yesterday, but I sure liked your answer. And then he told me that when he was a young man, he used to be a Sunday school teacher in Morden. And in, in spoke for a few minutes, and in a couple of years he took sick and he died, and I used to think, God, what was all that about? When he was on his deathbed, did you remind him that there was a court he was going to stand in front of that was much more scary than the Supreme Court of Canada? And all of his arguments and everything would mean nothing. And God, did you bring to his remembrance maybe a verse or a lesson from his time in Morden? Was I just watering seeds that were planted when he was this young Sunday school teacher? But God is faithful. And I can't imagine lawyers in heaven, but it's going to be possible. Uh, it's possible. God can do miracle work. And uh, I just pray that, that God, you, you had opportunity. You let me maybe water what was said. And I, I could just go on and on and on. And, and time doesn't permit, and we've been very much on a talking about things of Africa and missions and so on, and I want to finish with a, a story, a mission story. It's a true story. It happened back in around 1921. It's a story of a couple named Svey and Swedish couple, Svey and David Flood. And they felt, as young people, a call in their 20s, a call of God upon their lives to go to Africa and to take the gospel there. They teamed up with another Scandinavian couple named the Ericsons, and the floods with their little two-year-old, and the Ericsons headed out for Africa. They decided when they got to the chief mission statement in what was then the Belgian Congo, uh, that rather than stay with the other missionaries, that they would go to the more remote areas of Africa. And so they headed out, and when they got to a remote village, Nadalero, they, uh, the chief wouldn't cooperate. Sound familiar, Janet? The chief wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't allow them to come into the village and speak to the villagers. And so they went about a half a mile up the slope of the mountain and they built their mud huts up there. But the chief just refused to allow them to come and have any contact with the villagers except one young boy. And that young boy was allowed to come two times a week to bring them chickens and eggs to buy. And so they were getting very discouraged. That was their only contact. But Svei Flood said... If this is the only contact we have with the village, then I'm going to tell this boy about Jesus. And every time he came up, she would speak to him about Jesus, and the boy was saved. And uh, not long after, she found out that in this remote, remote place that she was pregnant. And understand, this is the 1920s. There wasn't the medical facilities and knowledge and everything else. And, and she delivered a little girl that she, they called... Aina, uh, and 17 days later, they passed away from just the, the 
the, the delivery had been an exhausting one and she had had some health problems and at the age of 27, uh, she went to be with the Lord and something snapped in David and he took her and bundled up the kids and he took her and buried her in a crude grave down by the village and crudely marked and he said, God has abandoned me. God has forgotten me. He's taken everything that's... He's ruined my life. He took the baby and he went to the... And his son, he took, went to the mission station and, and said, I'm leaving. God, God is not going to be in my life anymore. And he left. Left the baby and finally an American couple took the baby back to the United States with them. And uh, they decided they wouldn't go back to the mission field because they, they loved her and they felt there would be too many problems in doing so. And so they stayed in South Dakota. And they called her Aggie. They Americanized her name to Aggie. And Aggie grew up and attended North Central Bible College in, in Minneapolis and uh, met her husband there. Dewey Hurst was the name. And uh, together they served God, and then he got a call to Seattle to be president of a Bible college there. And they moved to there with, they had a boy and a girl now, and, and they moved there, and while they were there, they, um, they realized what a Swedish influence there was in the area. And one day in her, in her mailbox, she found a Swedish magazine, which she couldn't read, but as she was thumbing through the pages, she noticed a picture, an inset picture with an article. And on it, there was a sort of a remote-looking area, primitive grave, and a white cross on it that had space flood on it. And so she hurried to the college because she knew there was a faculty member there who was able to translate the article. And the instructor summarized the story from her. It was about missionaries who had come to the, this village a long time ago. The one little African boy who had been led to Christ. And how after all the whites had left, the boy had got permission from the chief. He had grown up. He had got permission from the chief to let him build a school in the village. And gradually he led every one of his students to Jesus. And every one of the children led their parents to Jesus. And even the chief had become a Christian. And at the time of the writing of the article, it said that there were now 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of a young couple that went and planted seeds on that mountainside. On their 25th wedding anniversary, the college sent them on a vacation to Sweden and she met her biological father, the rule in his house was don't mention God. He was very sick. He had turned to an alcoholic all of his, the rest of his life. And she had an opportunity to speak to him and say, Dad, you need to know that it wasn't, God didn't abandon us, that your labor wasn't in vain. And God did a miracle through that one boy. She said, the one boy, the one seed that you planted just kept growing and growing. And he made his peace with God and died a few weeks later. 
few years later, again, they attended a high-level evangelism conference in London, England. Superintendent of Zaire, that was used to be the Belgian Congo, representing 110,000 baptized believers, uh, spoke to them, and she couldn't help herself after she went up to him and, and asked him if, if he ever had heard of her parents. David and Stay Flood, and he said, I was the boy. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. Then he invited them to come to Africa. He said, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. They did have opportunity to go to Africa to visit. And she went to see the white cross and the grave herself. She knelt in the soil and gave thanks while the pastor read from Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Planting seeds, it's what we're all called to do. The Apostle Paul says that we are, we are a letter from Christ. We are a letter from Christ. Our lives are a letter from Christ. Not a letter written with pen and ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not one carved on stone, but in human hearts. Someone has once well said, preach the gospel, sometimes even use words. And that's what that says, your life is a letter. And whether you're going to Africa this week or whether you're going to be here in a job or whether you're going back to school or whether you're located in some neighborhood, be aware of this, people. I ask the Holy Spirit to make you aware of this as a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price and you are to glorify God in your body and your spirit, which belong to him. You are to plant seeds, seeds of the gospel by your kindness, by the things that we see in the scripture. All of the things, the joy, the peace, the kindness, all of the things that are the fruit of the spirit ought to be evident to the people round about us. And we are representatives of Jesus here and now because God wants to reveal himself to a world through you as you pass through as you pass through. And I leave that with you this morning, that you will be the gospel that is being proclaimed, that your life will be that, and that you will, whether you see fruit or not, it doesn't matter. I spent many years at camp and so on, and God gave me that verse, one plants and one waters, but God gives the increase. And that was a great relief to me. And now I do what I know that God gives me opportunities to do. And if I don't know what comes next, I don't have to know because I know God and that he's faithful. And I just want to be faithful to be used as and when I can in whatever manner. If it's to go, it's to go. If it's to stay, it's to stay. Whatever it is, I want to be faithful to God because we're going to answer someday for what we do. And there are rewards for those who are faithful in, in just planting seeds and doing what God asks them to do. 
And I pray that that will be your experience. Go home and pray about it. Ask God to give you opportunities. Not only that, I believe there's opportunities all around us. Tell him to wake us up to the opportunities he's got in front of us and show us that in the smallest ways we're to represent him to a dying world. Will you stand with me, please? Once again, we're going to pray in closing for, I think they call themselves the A-plus team. And uh, they're headed out this coming week now to Africa. Please uh, be faithful. And if Tom's going to be opening the church in that, for those of you that can, be there to pray. But whatever you pray at home, pray for them. They're going to a place called the Dark Continent. And they're going to take the light of Jesus there with them. And we need to be behind them 150% uh, in our prayers so that uh, they're covered. They're covered in prayer. And uh, we're going to pray just in closing tonight and then that, or this afternoon and then that you will, you also will, will just feel a, a touch from God that he needs you and and wants you so that he can reveal himself in a world where people are, are not paying attention to the usual things that he does. You are going to be his hand extended from now on. You're going to see that. And so, A-plus team, uh, you've been up here a lot of times, but how about you come up here just one final time? Just those of you that are here from the A-plus team, come quickly and just come on to the front. And we're just going to say one more prayer over you and and send you on your way this week and uh, get some sleep. Get some sleep. And those of you, join with me in prayer and we'll just... Um, sure, Tom, come on up and, and stand with them. Any other of the people that are here, the elders, if you want to join us up here, we're just going to say one more prayer. EJ, I see you standing up here and I think of of you standing up here on Kids Club nights with all your beautiful smile and your enthusiasm. And I think of, of how you teach them and lead them in John 3.16. That's planting seeds. Planting seeds in all these little things. Let's pray, everybody. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a faithful God and who you call you also enable. And Lord, we pray for this group who have stood forth and said, here I am, send me. And we know that where there is darkness, when light appears, the darkness dispels, goes away. And so we pray that that will happen in the lives of each one, that, that they will understand that you are greater, far greater than anything that's in this world. And I just pray right now a very special anointing. They have been commissioned already to go, but I pray a special anointing. I pray your peace to just flood over each and every one of them and their families, Lord. I pray for your peace. And may they have that sense of excitement in knowing that they are going there to plant the seeds of the gospel in whatever way that's going to manifest itself. It doesn't matter if that's what they're going for, Lord. I pray that you would just give them fruit. When they stand before you, Lord, may they hear that, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And what I pray for them, I pray for everyone here. I pray, Lord, that they would know and understand the responsibility that they have to go as they pass through this one life that they have. Whether they stop a place for a day or they stop for a year or several years, help them to understand that you have a work for them to do. Help us to be faithful to you, O Lord, we pray. Now bless each one as they go from this place. And we thank you, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.